Now, Genesis 19, 23, 23 to 38. Here we'll have further explanation about the destruction of Sodom and also how the daughters of Lot, his daughters sin against him. 1923, 23 to 29. We'll read that part first. The sun had risen over the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But his wife from behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Now Abraham <clears throat> arose early in the morning and went to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he saw, and behold, the smoke of the land ascended like the smoke of a furnace. Thus it came about when God destroyed the cities of the valley that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot lived. <clears throat> now we have here in verse 23 an interesting statement. The sun had risen over the earth when Lot came to Zoar. The sun had risen. Remember we saw earlier in 15, 1915 when morning dawned and also um, they wanted to uh, or Lot wanted to send the men away the, the two angels to rise early and go your way in 19 verse 2. What happens usually first thing in the morning when everything is calm and peaceful? We think, well, this is another day. Everything's going to be as usual. But it's not going to be as usual. In this way, I think the text of 1923 is teaching us that life appeared as usual, but it wasn't as usual. We have examples, actually, of the Bible explaining things this way, that when sinful men pursue their sin, they think that everything is just fine. Nothing is going to change. But notice, Jeremiah 20, verse 16. Jeremiah 20, 16. But let that man be like the cities which the Lord overthrew without relenting. And let him hear an outcry in the morning and a shout of alarm at noon. Jeremiah alludes to this passage and he says, Let the cursed man, let the cursed man be like the cities which the Lord overthrew without relenting. That's echoing, summarizing Genesis 18 and 19. And let him hear an outcry in the morning and a shout of alarm at noon. The outcry of their sins went up to heaven. And now God punishes them for their sins. And there is an outcry because of their punishment. That also reaches up to heaven. It's so vast and widespread. And when did this happen? In the morning and at noon. So in the early part of the day when they thought life was carrying on as usual. This is also what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24 and 25 and in Luke 17. Matthew 24, 25 and Luke 17. And 1 Thessalonians 5, 3. 1 Thessalonians 5, 3. When they are saying peace and safety, yeah. then destruction will come upon them suddenly 
like birth pangs upon a woman. Okay? They will think everything is fine, but everything is not fine because they're not believing the Word of God. Verse 24, 19:24. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. We note, as we did earlier in 19:14, it says that the Lord was uh, sending them to destroy the city. And here too, 24, it says the Lord is doing it, and even the Lord out of heaven. 25, he overthrew those cities. That is, God overthrew those cities. Verse 29, God destroyed the cities of the valley when he overthrew the cities in which Lot lived. Clearly, the scripture is putting the responsibility for this punishment on God. God is the one acting based on his righteousness, based on his justice to punish wicked people. This is not happening by accident. It's not an act of nature. It's not mother nature. It's not the gods. It's not the, the demons or anything like that. They are not the ones bringing about this righteous punishment on wicked people. It is God himself. Further notice in verse 24, the word the Lord occurs two times. This is the word in the original Hebrew language, Yahweh or Jehovah. Many people know it as Jehovah, but Yahweh is the original word in Hebrew and translated the Lord. When it has four capital letters, L-O-R-D, that is the word Yahweh. When it does not have the four capital, just L capitalized, it's another Hebrew word, Adonai. In this case, though, it's using the word Yahweh or the Lord for two individuals or two persons. Notice, the Lord reigned on Sodom and Gomorrah, brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. So one Lord is right there near Sodom and Gomorrah as a witness and as a confirmation, not for his God's benefit, but for the benefit of the people to know that God took pains and he was very patient to check and, and make sure that the sins were actually sins and numerous and reached their full and that it was time to punish them. So one Lord is there, the other Lord is in heaven. And he calls on the Lord in heaven to now bring the punishment to those who dwell in those cities. Who are these two? I believe the sun is on the earth. He is the one who dialogued with Abraham in chapter 18. He is the one also who meets up with the two angels who were with Lot. And at what point does he meet up with them? At least by verse 19. Look at 1919. 1919. Now, this is not evident in English, but it is evident in Hebrew by 1919. In chapter 19, so far, whenever Lot is addressing the angels or the men, it's in the plural, you, your, in the plural, or when they are speaking, it's the men or the angels or the two angels, it's in the plural. And even as far as verse 18, oh no, my lords, in the plural, okay? However, by 19, by 19, he addresses one of them, and I believe this one is the Lord Jesus, the Son of God, the pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. Why? 
Because in 1919, in the Hebrew language, five times he uses the singular form of the word. Five times he uses the singular form of the word. Verse 19, he says, Now behold, your servant, your is singular in Hebrew, found favor in your sight. Your is singular in Hebrew. And you have magnified your loving kindness, which you have shown me. You have magnified, the you is singular. Your loving kindness, your is singular. You have shown me, you is singular. So five times the singular is used. I believe at that point, that is the Lord Jesus, the Son of God. And then when we see in verse 21, 21, and he said to him, and he said, that is the Lord said to him, behold, I singular grant you singular this request also not to overthrow the town of which you have spoken. Uh, 22 also hurry escape there for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. By 20 and 20, I'm sorry, 21 and 22 the singular I is used. So the singular is used to address the Lord and then the Lord answers in 21 and 22. That's why by the time of 24, the Lord who is also there with Lot calls on the Lord from heaven to judge the cities. This in the Bible is not the only place. There are actually numerous places where we have the three persons or the two persons of the Trinity in the same verse. And we cannot take these passages as though God is speaking of himself in the third person. That one person of the Trinity is speaking of himself in the third person, which though I grant occasionally does happen. For example, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, right? He refers to himself as the Son of Man in several places during his ministry in the third person. Even though he's talking, he calls himself the Son of Man. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Luke 19.10. Son of Man, he said it himself, speaking of himself. But I think in this passage, it cannot be that way. It has to be at least two persons of the Trinity. The Lord reigned on Sodom and Gomorrah, brimstone and fire, from the Lord out of heaven. Okay? Two persons. Let's see some other examples of two or more persons of the Trinity. And in order to have one location and for brevity, let's go to the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah. Isaiah 11. Isaiah 11, verse 1. Isaiah 11, 1 and 2. Isaiah 11, 1 and 2. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. If we continue reading to verse 10, he is clearly speaking of Christ. Isaiah is describing Christ. But notice there in verse 2, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him will rest on Christ. And if your Bible 
capitalizes the initials for pronouns when referring to deity, like the NASB does in verse 2, the NASB has a capital H for him because they believe this is messianic. They believe it's Christ. The him is Christ. So we have the spirit of the Lord. We have the Lord, that is the Father. And we also have the Son, him, Christ. All in one verse, all in one phrase. You don't even need to have a full sentence right there. It's just in one phrase. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. Another example of the same, Isaiah chapter 42. Isaiah chapter 42. 42 verse 1. Isaiah 42 verse 1. And this passage is quoted in Matthew 12, 18 to 21. Matthew 12, 18 to 21. So we have a confirmation from Matthew the Apostle that this is Messianic also. So Isaiah 42, verse 1, what does it say? Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. So forth. 1 to 4 is relevant, but verse 1 shows, I have put my spirit upon him. Who is speaking? The Lord is speaking, right? So it must be the Father who is speaking, saying he's going to put his spirit, my spirit, upon him. Who's him? Christ, the Son. So we have Father, Spirit, and Son. And I have put my spirit upon him. Another place, Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61, verse 1. Isaiah 61, 1. Which passage is quoted in Luke 4, 18 and 19? Also messianic, according to Christ himself. Luke 4, 18 and 19, Christ makes this or proves that this is messianic. Isaiah 61, 1. He doesn't make it messianic. He proves that it is. 61, 1. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. The Spirit is the Holy Spirit of the Lord God, the Father, upon me, the Son. Three persons of the Trinity right there. And one more place in Isaiah. Turn back to chapter 48. Isaiah 48. Isaiah 48 12. Isaiah 48, 12. We'll read 12 to 16. Isaiah 48, 12. Listen to me, O Jacob, even Israel, whom I called. I am he. I am the first. I am also the last. Who's speaking? Right? God is speaking. We'll, we'll see specifically who. But God is speaking, right? I am the first and I am the last. 13. Surely my hand founded the earth, and my right hand spread out the, the heavens. When I call to them, they stand together. Assemble, all of you, and listen. Who among them has declared these things? The Lord loves him. He shall carry out his good pleasure on Babylon, and his arm shall be against the Chaldeans. I, even I, have spoken. Indeed, I have called him, I have brought him, 
and he will make his ways successful. Come near to me, listen to this. From the first, I have not spoken in secret. From the time it took place, I was there. And now, the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. And now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. Well, God was speaking in verse 12, right? And he continued to speak. And now and he says, and now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. Three persons of the Trinity right there. God, me, and his spirit. And God speaking. So Christ was speaking. Yes. So who was speaking in verse 12? Christ was speaking, calling himself the first and the last, which we also see in Revelation chapter 1, 117. Uh, do not be afraid. I fell at his feet like a dead man, and he said to me, do not be afraid. I am the first, and I am the last, and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. So this is Christ, the Father, the Son, and Spirit, right here in Isaiah 48, 12 to 16. Many more cases like this throughout the Old Testament. These are just a few examples. Now, in 1924, 1924, brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And in 28, it says, the smoke of the land ascended like the smoke of a furnace. Well, how in Revelation chapter 9 and Revelation chapter 19 and 20, how is the lake of fire described? Right. Described like this too. Yep. The, the place of eternal punishment is described just like this. And why? According to 2 Peter 2, 6-8 and Jude 7, the reason is that this illustrates the way eternal lake of fire, eternal punishment, hell is like. It's like this. The way that they were punished is the way it will be in hell. So hell will be a burning place it will be a waste place, and it will be a smelly place, a very undesirable place where there is torment and punishment forever. Right. Just like brimstone or sulfur is. Sulfur is smelly. And so this fire and stench is what they experience for their sin. Then notice it says in verse 20, uh, 26, but his wife from behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. She looked back and became a pillar of salt. She was behind him. Now, if she were behind him and he's in front of her, should she not do like he did? He's doing the right thing and he's looking ahead. He's not looking back. And she, the wife, should have looked to him and for his direction and stayed with him looking forward, not back. But she didn't. She looked back behind him and looked back. Why did she look back? Because she wasn't following his example, but also because she wanted to go back. She wanted to go back and she was double-minded and unstable in all her ways. She was warned not to look back, and probably she also looked back so that she wouldn't um, do that in front of her husband, because he's looking forward. So she was trying to do something behind his back, too. 
looking back. And she was warned, they all were warned not to do this from verse 17. Verse 17 says, And it came about when they had brought them outside that one said, Escape for your life, do not look behind you. Do not look behind you and do not stay anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountains, lest you be swept away. So, um, she looked back contrary to the command and she became a pillar of salt. In Judges 9.45, when uh, the city is sown with salt in Judges 9.45, that is a way to disparage this, the place, to confirm its punishment, to, to show that it is a rejected place, a, a worthless place, a place of condemnation and punishment. And that's what God does here. He does that to her. He not only rains fire and brimstone on the area, but she herself becomes a pillar of salt. Sudden judgment, instant judgment laid on her. Which judgment is confirmed as a historical incident by our Lord Jesus in Luke 17, 32. Luke 17 and verse 32. Our Lord says, we'll actually begin at verse 28. Let's begin at Luke 17, 28. It was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. Right? Normative behavior. Everything is as usual. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let not the one who is on the housetop and whose goods are in the house go down to take them away. And likewise, let not the one who is in the field turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to keep his life shall lose it, and whoever loses his life shall preserve it alive. So she becomes an example of punishment and uh, as an unbeliever who loses her soul. Luke 9. Luke 9, we have more examples of this. Luke 9, of those who want to turn back and they want to go back to their uh, surroundings, they want to go back to their possessions, they want to go back to their friends and family. Luke 9, 57. And as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And he said to another, Follow me. But he said, Permit me first to go and bury my father. But he said to him, Allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go, proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. And another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, No one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. You put your hand to the plow, don't look back, because it's not good for farmers to keep looking back, then they won't plow in a straight row. But here, that's an illustration. Don't look back, because if you look back, you're not fit for the kingdom of God. Keep looking ahead. She did not do so, and she was punished. This shows, too, we have 
And this will be an in, uh, in anticipation of what we see later. I don't think the sons-in-law were believers. Nope. Lot's wife was not a believer. And I doubt also that his daughters were believers right. because of what, how they behaved later. I doubt that they were believers. So how many believers were in Sodom? One. One. Lot. <laughs> Only Lot. 27, verse 27. Genesis 19, 27. Now Abraham arose early in the morning and went to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he saw, and behold, the smoke of the land ascended like the smoke of a furnace. Abraham knew that it was going to be early in the morning. So he arose early to see it, to be a witness, to be an eyewitness of it all. He believed the word of the Lord. He did not sleep in. He believed the word of the Lord. He went to go see it and to be a witness. He stood at the high place, the higher ground place, because it says where he stood before the Lord. In verse 28, he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah because these were in the valley. So in the valley, that's where these cities were. And he was on high ground to see the destruction. And he saw it like the smoke of a furnace. The smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace. He saw that horrible and terrible destruction. 29. Thus it came about when God destroyed the cities of the valley that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot lived. Notice first that it says that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out. How did God remember Abraham? He remembered Abraham because Abraham's petition in Genesis 18 was for God not to destroy righteous people along with wicked people. So he remembered the petition of Abraham by sparing Lot, a righteous man. Righteous Lot. To remember Abraham in other places in Scripture, such as um, Deuteronomy 7, 8, 9, 5, and 9, 27. In those places in the book of Deuteronomy, to remember Abraham is to remember the promises he made to Abraham and even the petitions of Abraham for himself and for his posterity. This is what God is reminding us of in verse 29, that Abraham is this significant in Scripture. He is a model and example for us. And also, verse 29 mentions once more, he overthrew the cities in which Lot lived. Overthrew the cities. From Deuteronomy 29.23, Deuteronomy 29.23, this one place in Scripture actually mentions the, the names of the other two cities destroyed. We know there was Sodom and Gomorrah, and then another one called Adma, and a fourth called Zeboim. Adma and Zeboim. And also the fifth one that wasn't destroyed, it was about to be destroyed but spared, is Zoar, mentioned in Genesis 19.22. These were the five cities of the valley. Four out of the five are named and four of them, at least four of them, were destroyed by God. Have you seen a word here? Have you seen a word repeated? Verse 25, he overthrew those cities. 
And in verse 29, he overthrew the cities. To overthrow. This is a word that is used in the prophets and, and throughout um, the scripture. Whenever we are making reference to Sodom and Gomorrah, it's called an overthrow. God overthrew the city. And whenever other cities or nations are threatened, this word is also used. Whenever other cities are threatened with destruction, this word is used also. Let's see an example. Our first example is in Amos. Amos chapter 4. Amos chapter 4. Find the major prophets, Isaiah, and go over a few pages, or go to Matthew and go back a few pages to Amos. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah. Hosea, Joel, Amos. Amos chapter 4, verse 11. Amos 4, 11. Now here, this is a judgment oracle against the people of Israel. And he says in Amos 4, 11, I overthrew you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were like a firebrand snatched from a blaze, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. He overthrows Israel as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. There we have our word, and there we have the example of these two cities, Sodom and Gomorrah. This is also a verse that's similar to Genesis 19.24. God is the speaker. He says, I, and he refers to himself in the third person, which I think God as the speaker is referring to another person of the Trinity overthrowing Sodom and Gomorrah. Right here in the one verse of Amos. And then one example of another nation threatened with overthrow is in Jonah. Amos. After Amos, we have Obadiah and then Jonah. Obadiah and Jonah. Jonah chapter 3. Remember, Jonah was sent to preach repentance and faith in the gospel of Christ to the Ninevites, a foreign city hundreds of miles away from his native soil. Jonah 3, 4. What does he say to, to them? Jonah 3, 4. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. There's our term, overthrown. Forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. This is the threat throughout Scripture. If there is no repentance, then there is the threat of overthrow, and if you were on top, you're going to be turned upside down. You're going to be overthrown. The first shall be last, and the last first. This is an example of that. Now, let's go to Genesis 19 and the final paragraph. 1930, the sin of Lot's daughters. The sin of Lot's daughters. 1930, and Lot went up from Zoar and stayed in the mountains, and his two daughters with him, for he was afraid to stay in Zoar, and he stayed in a cave, he and his two daughters. Then the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and let us lie with him, that we may preserve our family through our father. So they made their father 
drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. And it came about in, uh, on the morrow that the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go and go in and lie with him, that we may preserve our family through our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus, both the daughters of Lot were with child by their father. And the firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. And as for the younger, she also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the sons of Ammon to this day. So here we have the two daughters who are saying, uh, okay, verse 31st. Zoar, he flees Zoar because he's afraid to stay there. And why would he be afraid to stay in Zoar? Perhaps because he knows it's also a wicked town. It's the smallest of them, but it's a wicked one. And he doesn't want any potential future danger coming to him, either morally or in consequence of God's judgment on that town. So he flees there and he goes to the mountains. Now, when he goes to the mountains with his two daughters, the firstborn has this proposal. Our father is old, and there is not a man, she says, there's not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of the earth. Now, when she says the earth, I don't think, or the New American Standard Bible says the earth I don't think she's saying there, it's impossible for us to find somebody throughout the whole globe. I don't think she means that. She might have said that in exaggeration, the earth, but at least she's saying there's no one around here, no one in this land. At least she's saying that. But is even that true? No, because there's Abraham's household, right? There's Abraham's household, and they could, have, she, they could have gone to Haran because later in Genesis 24, Abraham sends his servant to find a wife for Isaac in Haran where they had lived previously. So whatever she meant by this, it's not true. Whatever she meant by this, it's not true. It's not true locally and it's not true in terms of going abroad and finding a husband. It's not true. For some reason... She is uh, fixed on this idea that there is no one who's going to marry us. So, verse 32, the proposal. Come, let us make our father drink wine and let us lie with him that we may preserve our family through our father. Make our father drink wine. Now, it's not just the drinking of the wine that's going to do it, right? It's going to be the amount of drinking wine. Because if you just drink a little bit, it's not going to make you so, so um, obtuse or so dull, so stupefied that you don't realize what's happening to you in your, in your surroundings. But notice, it does say in verse uh, 35, verses 33 and 35, 33 and 35 say, He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. 
Well, how does that happen? It does not happen if you just drink a little bit. It happens when you drink too much. Correct? And so we know when it says, let us make our father drink wine, that is, she meant to say, let us make him drunk so that we can force this upon him while he's drunk. Then, Habakkuk chapter 2, Habakkuk chapter 2 does have a verse that says that some people actually do this to others. Some people actually make others drink so much that they get drunk and then they exploit them. They do this to others and then exploit them. Habakkuk 2.15, also in the prophets. Habakkuk 2.15, Woe to you who make your neighbors drink, who mix in your venom even to make them drunk, so as to look on their nakedness. So as to look on their nakedness, which also reminds us of what likely what Ham did to Noah, his father, in Genesis chapter 9. Probably he did the same in Genesis chapter 9. So Habakkuk 2.15, it says, Woe to you who make your neighbors drink, who mix in your venom even to make them drunk, so as to look on their nakedness. They forced it upon him. They forced it and even perhaps deceptively brought it upon him. And he did not know what was happening. So what's the result of this? 37 and 38. The firstborn bore a son named Moab, and he is the father of the Moabites. The Moabites. So the name Moab first comes from this this union between the firstborn daughter and Lot, and his name is Moab. The nation also later is called Moab or Moabites. The nation of Moab or the Moabites from that nation. And 38, the younger daughter, she bore a son, Ben-Ami. Ben-Ami means son of my people. Son of my people. And the abbreviation is sometimes the Ammonites, And here, the sons of Ammon. Sons of also means, um, sons is related to this word ben, and it's a plural form of the word ben from Hebrew. So son of my people becomes sons of Ammon, or sons of my people. And they are commonly known as the Ammonites or the sons of Ammon. Later in Scripture, These nations live adjacent to the nation of Israel. They live on the eastern side of the Jordan River, east of the Jordan River and southeast of the Jordan River, uh, north of Edom. So they are there in that territory. And also, we have one significant individual from this nation later in Scripture, and that is Ruth. Ruth, in the book of Ruth, She is a descendant of Lot. She's a descendant of Lot and the firstborn daughter. And in uh, in Ruth chapter 4, 17 to 22, in Ruth 4, 17 to 22, she becomes an ancestress 
of David, of King David. Luke 4, I'm sorry, not Luke, I keep saying Luke, Ruth. Ruth chapter 4, Ruth 4, 17. Remember, Ruth is from Moab, and she marries Boaz from Judah. And 4.17 says, once they married, and the neighbor women gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. So, and Naomi, they say to Naomi because um, Ruth was the daughter-in-law of Naomi. A son has been born to Naomi, so they named him Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. The father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Now, who was Perez? Perez was the son of Judah. The son of Judah. Yes. To Perez was born Hezron, and to Hezron was born Ram, and to Ram Aminadab, and to Aminadab was born Nashon, and to Nashon Salmon, and to Salmon was born Boaz, and to Boaz Obed, and to Obed was born Jesse, and to Jesse David. There we have the connection from Perez to David through Boaz, Ruth, and Obed. And the connection to Christ, the connection to Christ, Matthew chapter 1, Matthew 1, verse 1, Matthew 1, 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. To Abraham was born Isaac, and to Isaac Jacob, and to Jacob Judah and his brothers, and to Judah were born Perez, and to Perez by Tamar, and, and to Perez was born Hezron, and to Hezron Ram, and to Ram was born Aminadab, and to Aminadab Nashon, and to Nashon Salmon, and to Salmon was born Boaz by Rahab, and to Boaz was born Obed by Ruth, and to Obed Jesse, and to Jesse was born David the king. This In this genealogy of Christ, Christ is mentioned in verse 1 and also in verse 16. Um, was born Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Matthew 1, 16. And what's the lesson here? Though sin is happening here, God uses evil and sin to bring about good. Praise the Lord. God uses evil and sin to bring about good. We know this from the most often quoted verse from Romans 8, 28. And God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. We who love Him, whatever evil happens, God will still use it for good. However God defines good, however God wants good, in his own time to bring that about. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.